Hi there. I'm Laura Wasser, and if anyone knows how much divorce sucks, it's me. I've been practicing family law for over 25 years, and I've worked on thousands of divorces, from the top of the food chain all the way down to my very first case, which was my own divorce when I was 25. It has become my life's mission to destigmatize divorce and create a community around what is already a difficult time. We call it the evolution of dissolution. So welcome to the Divorce Sucks Podcast, where we talk about breaking up, getting divorced, and moving on. I'm a problem solver, and although it's great to be able to build per hour and work with people who have really complex litigation divorces, I want to bring this philosophy about moving on into the next chapter of your life and doing it in a simple and cost-effective way for everybody. You will be okay, your kids will be okay, and you might even find romantic love again. As you navigate all of this, remember it takes a village. Identify your support system, where you are, and lean on them. Whether it's friends, family, clergy people, a support group at your church, or your book club, talk about what you're going through. At It's Over Easy, we try to cultivate community. My book club is one of my favorite activities, not just because of the enlightening and provocative books we read, but because of the chill, non-judgmental environment that exists when we are all together discussing what we're reading and relating it to our own lives, loves, and losses. Whether it's fiction or nonfiction, books teach us things, and they're unique in their ability to ignite our imagination, particularly when we're thinking about our own next chapters. So let's just say today's episode is an invitation to my book club. And joining the club today is my first guest, a California girl, who happens to have written the first book we're going to discuss called Captivate, which is a national bestseller. She's a YouTube star, a human behavior hacker, we'll find out what that means, a researcher and writer on people skills and interpersonal intelligence who has been featured in Fast Company, Men's Health, Forbes, and on Fox News. But more importantly, she's addicted to Sour Patch Kids, airplane coffee, and puppies. Welcome to Divorce Sucks, Vanessa Van Edwards. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for that good little intro, Johnny. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. How did you know that? How did you know that? So you're based in Portland and you flew to join us today. So you moved. just moved into Austin. Ooh, yeah. I think Austin, good. Austin, I've heard good. really good things about. Okay. Tacos. So at Tacos, right. Tell us um, a little bit about your philosophy because I have looked through Captivate a bit, gone on your YouTube. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated. Like this is kind of like one of the things I love most about practicing the kind of law I do because you really get inside people's heads. You kind of, you have this amazing viewpoint where you're looking into people's most private area. Like you get to look in their medicine cabinet. Yes. Purses yes. and their side tables. So we do sim- similar things, but we try to look into their personality. Um, and so we're trying to crack people's personality and develop formulas to be able to read people. Okay. I've always been fascinated with decoding behavior, everything from body language to emotions. Right. Um, because I'm a recovering awkward person. <laughs> I am I am not good at it naturally. Okay. And so I had to figure out the formulas to be able to learn it. I and, am not a natural. And you believe there are formulas? I believe there are formulas. Okay. I believe you can learn it. Okay. I, I think that charisma is a skill and there's multiple flavors of charisma. I think that's what we miss out on. So in, give us some tips on how to improve what you call our emotional intelligence, helping us communicate. Because again, whether you're starting a new chapter and getting out there in the world and meeting people as a newly single person or whether you're in a relationship that may or may not be working, one of the things we talk about a lot on this show is exactly that, how to make it work better. Mm -hmm. So I think the most important thing that you have to know about people is that unfortunately in our culture, we tend to all subscribe to one brand of charisma. 
that bubbly extrovert. Right. right. Everyone's always trying to be that. And the problem is, is that whether you're newly single or you've been in a relationship for many years, you're always trying to pretend or fake it till you make it to yes. be that. Yeah. So that's one of my mottos. Right. Not good. I need well, to change my motto. Maybe let's work on it. Okay. Let's work on it. Okay. okay. So here's why. There is a study done by Dr. Barbara Wild, and she looked at the most basic thing that you're told all the time, smile more, right? How often are you told? Just smile. Right. Go into a network right. event and smile. And so she looked at two different – she took actors. She took them uh, – pictures of them making real smiles and pictures of them making fake smiles. You looked at the pictures. You could not tell the difference between the two smiles. Then she had participants look at these pictures, and she gave them mood tests afterwards. She found that people who looked at the real smiles, even though they didn't know the difference, felt happier. Okay. The people who looked at the fake smiles felt nothing. So I think this means is that we can sense if someone is faking it till they make it, and we can sense if someone's trying to pretend to be that bubbly extrovert, that easygoing, that right. no problem. And so what I would say is a lot of, unfortunately, relationships start off in that fake it till you make it stage, right? Put on my makeup, put on my nice heels, get out there. Just get out there and say yes. Right. And then you meet people, but they're actually seeing the fake you. And right. that actually makes you less memorable, okay. right? Fake smiles do not infect people as much as the real smiles. Right. And so what's more important is figuring out what is your flavor of charisma. And everyone has a different flavor. Okay. Right? So you might think of all the different charismatic people you know. There's the, the, there's the party animal, of course. But there's also the serious contemplative introvert. Right. Who's very compelling. Right. There's also the intelligent, knowledgeable speaker, right? You want to ask them some questions. And there's the empathetic, compassionate listener. All of those things are charismatic. And your entire goal is figuring out how can I go out and still feel authentically real and smile, but what is my flavor of charisma? Right. Okay. And then you're going to attract someone who's going to be someone who's actually attracted to you for you. Are you going to captivate them? Um, yeah. Is all this stuff in the book? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, and, and why'd you decide to name it captivate? I'm just, I love oh. it. I just want to know, like, such yeah. a great word, captivating, captivate. So a little behind the scenes on the publishing industry, um, it's hard to get a one word title, right? They, they try to reserve one word titles for like big books. That's my title of my book was like 17 words, which yeah. I still yeah. to this day can barely remember all the extra <laughs> words, but okay. So my first book was also a thousand words long, right. right? Like they did not think it was a big book. I didn't know it at the time. And so as I was writing the book and it started to get a little bit of buzz, I was saying, you know, there's if we can get a one or two word title, and we thought, what is the one thing that you want when you're with someone? It's to captivate their attention. You right. want your ideas to be captivating, and so we thought that that was a, a the best way. We want that in our long term relationships and our short term relationships. Right. So, give us some of the shortcuts and systems and the behavior hacks. I love this. I love the hacks. Yes. So, one of the things I like to think about is that when we're interacting, it's actually all about chemicals. Right. Um, when we are having a really good interaction, we're having lots of oxytocin. So, oxytocin is my favorite chemical. So, oxytocin is uh, called the, nicknamed the cuddle hormone. It's what happens when we cuddle a lot, when we touch a lot, and it makes us feel belonging. So if you have a burst of oxytocin, it makes you feel calm, it makes you feel connected, it makes you feel accepted. So in a relationship, especially those first few seconds, right. what we're both searching for is, do I belong here? Right. So there are three shortcuts to oxytocin, and this is done in the research lab. The first shortcut to oxytocin is any kind of eye contact. So right now we're mutually gazing. You guys can't see us, but we're but gazing. We are. We're, we're gazing. mutually gazing. We're locked up. Totally captivated. Yes. 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 And we are like, our oxytocin is like- It's flying. Pumping. I mean, right. it's just like flowing We might out of even our make out later. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I, I'm hoping so. <laughs> I'm hoping so. 
So that's the first thing, right? And imagine this if you walk into a speed dating event, okay? What are you doing? You're first surveying the room and you're trying to see, am I going to make eye contact with anyone? That is the very first oxytocin you're going to make before you sit at the table, before you have a conversation. That's the first way we get oxytocin. The second way is touch. So the moment we shake hands with someone, touch their back, touch their shoulder, hug, cheek kiss, that is the biggest burst of oxytocin we can get. Okay. Chemically speaking, when you shake hands with someone, it's almost impossible to then turn around and walk away. And that's because it's our bodies trying to work with us to say, this is someone who you want to trust. If that's not just cultural enough, mu- muscle memory. No. That's actually chemical. Yes. Okay. In fact, when – this is a, when you hear a crazy study. So a researcher named Paul Zak went to a wedding. And he took everyone's blood from the bride and groom to all the bridesmaids. Did they know this was happening yes. before he got there? Yes. They sent that out on the invite. Okay. Can you imagine? No, but so I love it. <laughs> all the guests did blood work. He was able to predict by oxytocin levels the closeness to the bride. Wow. Because they the were groom, more invested. Okay. Because they were more invested. So not the groom though. Right. As close as they were, like the mother-in-law had the next, sorry, the mother of the bride had the next most oxytocin. Okay. How, how did the mother, how did the mother of the groom add out? Yeah, she's a little so further down, you know, <laughs> you know how that goes. But yeah, mother-in-laws. So that was a little farther down. Right. But they could predict it. And that's because our oxytocin is the meaning of why someone clicks. Right. You okay. go on a good date, it's oxytocin. What's the third one? All right. The third one is amazing mutual conversation. So right now, when we are able to riff back and forth and say, I hope we make out later. Yes, I was planning on it. That little bonding moment is the ultimate oxytocin builder. So if you have all three of those on a first date, that is when you get to the next one to get the next one. So I, I once had a therapist tell me that when you're in your first few months or weeks of falling in love with somebody, the chemical that your body produces is similar to the chemical that your body produces right after you've given birth That's with it. your mother. Is that oxytocin? That's, That's the same thing, that, that feeling of bliss, which inevitably, mm-hmm. both speaking as the mother of a teenager, but also as somebody who's a divorce lawyer, that fades. So why do, why do we cease to produce oxytocin? Vanessa, if Ah. you know. Have you hacked into this one? I want to know the answer. Yes, this is a very good question. So here's what happens. When you're in a relationship for a long time, yes, you're making a lot of eye contact when you're talking about things. But after a while- You're having mutually interesting conversations about like who's going to pick up the kids, right? You got it. Okay. Right. So this is what happens with my husband. I have a one-year-old and now all we talk about when we make eye contact is like poopy diapers. Right. You know, like was it a hard one or like a soft one? You know how that goes. Yes. And so- all these mutual gazing conversations are paired with conversations that are about nothing. Right. In fact, we begin to socially script. And this is the death of oxytocin. When you're in a relationship, friendship or romantic, and you could basically socially script that conversation, right. your brain goes on autopilot. And that's how a marriage goes on autopilot. Got it. So this is what happens. You get home from work and you're like, how was your day? Socially scripted question. Answer, Fine. Next. Good. So uh seems like the traffic was okay. You got home pretty early. Yep. Yep. What should we have for dinner? Yep, dinner. Uh yeah. <laughs> I've been a- I've been in this socially scripted relationship. We could do it. Right. Yeah. And the problem is is our brains are practically brain dead. And then we also stop paying attention. So this is the next phase. When you have a lack of oxytocin, you also stop seeing all the emotional cues. We stop really looking at someone. We stop noticing their sadness microexpression. So if we stop looking because we're on autopilot, then we you stop don't seeing. see it. Got it. And that's how over and over again, you're on this relationship where you're like, well, what do we do every weekend? We go to the same brunch place. We talk to the same people. We have the same conversations. And you lose that feeling of connection because you literally don't have the chemical anymore. Okay. So how do we avoid that? So here's how I think we avoid it. 
Uh, the first way is to make sure that we understand how our partner is wired. Okay. So I am a big believer in nature in the sense of each of us have five basic personality traits. Okay. And this is the only I love Enneagram, don't get me wrong. I love DISC and Myers Briggs, they're all great, but they are not backed up in science. The only Those one. Those are science things, guys. Yes, yeah, science. Okay. Yeah. Science, science, fancy science words. Right. The only one that is backed up in science is that we all have these five traits openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. In the best. Not eroticism, neuroticism. Eroticism is the extra. Right. It's like okay. a bonus. Okay. Every relationship should have that. Okay. So everyone has these five traits, and the greatest gift you can give your relationship is understanding where you fall on each of those traits and where your partner falls, Okay. and then understanding your shortcomings. And here's an example. Research has found that in a relationship, if someone is very high conscientious and someone is very low conscientious, so the opposite, mm -hmm. you are going to have one of the hardest relationships. That is something you should know right from the outset. For example, if I'm high conscientious, that means I'm, I'm very high conscientious, right. I love alphabetizing and to-do lists and organization. My husband is a little bit lower, but if he was very low. He would be the opposite. Okay. So every day we would have the same fight, Okay. which is my house is not as clean as I would like it to be. Right. And he's saying the house looks clean to me. Right. So your biggest hurdle is making sure that you are optimizing for those levels of conscientiousness. Okay. Whereas in a relationship where someone is a high neurotic, so neurotic is one of my favorite uh, personality traits. Right. No one ever likes to admit they're high neurotic. Neurotic is a worrier. Right. It's someone who actually takes their stability, their emotional stability from outside sources. Got it. Um, and an interesting fact about neurotics, if this is you, if you think that you uh, worry as an investment in failure prevention, mm -hmm. that's neurotic. Okay. People I do that. I worry as an investment in failure prevention because if I worry more, yeah. then bad things won't happen. So we are both probably high neurotic. Okay. So here's something interesting about us. If something bad happens to us, like let's say someone almost hits us, doesn't hit us, but almost hits us at a red light, we then produce more adrenaline and cortisol. Okay. And our body tries to calm ourselves. Okay, we're okay. Whew, we made it. We actually produce more adrenaline and cortisol and less serotonin, which helps us calm down right. than someone who's low neurotic. Got it. So you're in the car with your Do you think partner. that might help us lose weight? Oh, probably. Oh, for, oh, for sure. <laughs> There's some good that Although, can come Although neurotics are like, you know, all over the place. Right. So that also helps us okay. burn a lot of calories. Good. Okay. So the problem is in a marriage with a high neurotic and low neurotic, the low neurotic constantly says to their high neurotic, just calm down. Right. Chill. No worries. It'll all be okay. If, if someone tells me to calm down, never in the history of calm down has calm down ever calmed anyone down. Right. 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 Those are my two least favorite words in the English language. So no worries. It's fine. Calm down. It'll all be okay. Don't worry about it as if that's going to help. Right. And that's because a low neurotic, they have much more serotonin than we do. Right. So they physically feel calmer, whereas we are upset or anxious for hours. So if you're a low neurotic, how do you make a high neurotic? What do you say to calm somebody down? Okay. If you are a low neurotic and you have a high neurotic in your life, you want to know, one, how do they worry? Do they verbalize out loud or do they internalize? Okay. So oh, if someone's a verbalizer, you want to give them space to verbalize. Tell me about the worry. Tell me all about it. How did it happen? Where did it happen? Why did it happen? Tell me all about it because they're verbalizers. If they're internalizers, you want to give them space. Hey, you let me know when you want to come up for air. Do you want to go take some time? you want to go on a long walk? Do you want to go in your room? Do you want to hang out? Do you want to go in the hot tub? Whatever. Anything alone. That way you're giving them exactly what they need to be able to produce their own serotonin. Okay. Because we can't produce it for we them. We cannot produce it for Does them. this work in relationships that aren't like romantic? And, like, Can you do this with kids? Yes. I know a lot of our listeners have kids that are anxious. And I, the reason that when you said that, I tend to say to my nine-year-old a lot, calm down. 
it's going to be okay. That was, I'm sure, what I was taught by my mom. This is what you're supposed to say to calm somebody down. But it's, maybe it's not really working. Maybe it's more tell me what's making you worried or go take a minute and come yes. back. Okay. So the, the biggest thing is when it's – what's your child's name? Jack. Jack. Okay. So when Jack is calm, right? So not when in the moment. You could say, hey, like when you're upset like you were the other day, what can I do? Would you rather just like hang out in your room for a little bit or would you rather talk to me about it? And he'll probably be able to tell you yes. which one or the other. Yes. And that's what you want to enable because he needs time to produce the serotonin to, be able, mm-hmm, to be able to be able to Because I think we it. have a lot of kids out there that are not producing it on their own. Yes. For and, whatever reason. Maybe well, we we're could doing talk about wrong. digital. I mean, we, we could talk about that whole rabbit hole. Except Johnny's not allowed. Us. It's okay. not allowed. How could somebody that's going through a divorce, there's kind mm-hmm. of like shitty stuff that's clinging mm-hmm. to you still, but you're, you are trying to get out there. You may be able, you may be trying to fake it till you make it a little bit. Yeah. How can they apply your tools of persuasion? Well, first, you know, I want to just talk about divorce for a second in that I think that divorce can be a incredibly, it can be two things. It can be incredibly destructive or it can be incredibly cleansing. Right. So in the one way it can be destructive and it's the end of a relationship, the end of a life, but it also can be very cleansing and that you have this opportunity to start somewhere new. And so I think that that's, first of all, mentally, that cleansing is where I want us to think about, especially for your first impressions. And the reason for this is because our emotions are contagious and they have proven this over and over again. If you put a sad person in a happy room, that sad person will slowly infect everyone they're with. And so if we go into it with more of a cleansing attitude, it actually leaves us more blank, which allows us to be refilled with something good. So that's the very first thing. In terms of practicality, first impressions. So I have a quick question for you. When you first meet someone, where do you think you look first? What do you notice first on their body? I think I look at eyes first. Okay. So that is the most well, common. Boobs. Yeah. Or boobs. <laughs> oh, yeah, eyes. Okay. I didn't show them off for you today. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, yes, that is the most common guess is eyes, mouth, face. That's the most common guess. Yeah, definitely eyes. Okay. So here's the thing. When they look at eye tracking research, they actually find the very first place we look is our hands. And the reason for this is actually a survival mechanism. So if I hide my hands behind my back, I'm, I'm going to hide them behind my back so you can't see them, your brain begins to get a little bit nervous. In fact, where you process fear in the amygdala, you become more and more aware of my hands being behind my back. And after a while, you're like, can she just take what her the hands fuck is out happening behind, behind her back? Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. This is a survival mechanism because if in our caveman days, if we couldn't see someone's hands, we didn't know their intention. Right. So very, very simply, a very easy way to make a first impression is hands first, meaning hands out of the pockets, hands out of purses, but also making it very clear what kind of touch you want to give. The most awkward experience in human history is when you're walking up to someone and you're not sure if you're going to handshake or hug them. Right. Have you yes. had this horrible oh, yes. thing happen to you? Right. And you're like, hello, hi. <laughs> and in LA, you have to add the cheek kiss on yes. top of it. And it's yes. horrible. Right. So what you're better off Try being doing- a divorce lawyer, oh. by the way. I know. Oh. What do you do to the judges, to the other opposing no. parties? And now you have, and you have so many op- options these days. You have the fist bump because some people are germaphobes. Yes. They don't want to shake your yes. hand. You have the handshake, the high five. There's the this cheek new kiss. elbow thing too. Oh, that the elbow are doing. thing. Yeah. The side hug, the regular <laughs> hug, the double or triple cheek kiss, depending on what you're doing. And then there's like the snuggle, right? Where people like, you really like someone and then you have this long scoochie <laughs> hug. Right. Right. I don't do that. Yeah. Ever. I'm I'm not surprised that you don't do that. Something doesn't surprise me about that. So what you should do in your first impression is make sure you are signaling the exact kind of touch you want. Right. Okay. You have three choices. Like this? Yes. 
Yes, you're actually not that far off. <laughs> like the Heisman Trophy. <laughs> okay, you're not that far. You're making fun of it, okay. but you're not that far off. Okay, one, if you want a handshake, what we do subconsciously without even realizing it is we tend to blade our body. Right. So we actually lead in with our shoulder a little bit forward and our hand first. Right. I will lead that way for a good five seconds before I walk in. I don't know if you noticed when I came in, I was like out with my hand. I knew we weren't going to hug. Okay. I knew we weren't going to cheek kiss. Because you're a Marlboro girl. Yeah, I I mean, I'm a Beverly girl. There's no hugs there. (laughs) I might hug you next time, but okay. okay. Yes. If I make it to the second date. (laughs) I got it. I got it. So we'll make out first and then we'll we'll be able to That's how I roll. Cool. Sorry, Vanessa. I like slutty. I like your levels of intimacy. (laughs) Make out first and then a hug. So... Blade your body a little that bit. Says it all, right? <laughs> okay, so you blade their body. Okay, blade so hand first. If you want to hug, the universal hug expression is this. So you right. have your hands open, palms slightly up, and when you walk in with your, I call it full frontal, aiming with your body, fronting theirs. People know you're coming in for a hug. Okay. Cheek kiss is when you have your hands out. Yeah. Right. And you go, oh, mm, yeah. mm, and you're, I'm angling my cheek a little bit towards right. you. Right. Just be clear. And that also helps you have your hands be visible. So it's kind of a secret double, double tip. I like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So right. that's the first one. All right. So uh, we're going to move on. And what you were saying before about divorce being cleansing and mm-hmm. giving you an opportunity for new experiences, I want to add somebody to our book club list. She's not only captivated after she got divorced, but she's seduced many. And she writes about it in her best-selling memoirs, which were published earlier this year. Stay tuned. I'm Laura Wasser, and this is Divorce Sucks. On today's show, we're opening up to some of my favorite reads this year, including Captivate, The Science of Succeeding with People, written by my first guest today, behavioral investigator Vanessa Van Edwards. Other books that have moved me this year and last are Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Bredeser Anchor, just the sort of thing that Philip Roth or John Updike might have produced in their prime, except, of course, that the author understands women. I love this book. It's about a guy that's um, going through a divorce and kind of going back to some of the folks that he hung with in college and just dealing with this transformation in a really real and often heartbreakingly funny way. I also read The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Taylor wrote Daisy Jones and the Six, which I loved and everybody's reading this summer. But The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo had to do with this woman who um, has been through all of these different relationships in her life. And she was a Hollywood actor back in the 50s and 60s. And I just, it was delicious. Three Women by Lisa Taddeo is getting a lot of buzz. They call it a literary masterpiece. And it was definitely provocative. I'm not sure I could tell you that I loved it, but it was very interesting reading about these three women's different experiences having to do with their sexuality, their relationships, etc., and how we as a culture view women. Really, really good tie-in for the book that we're going to talk about next. And The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo. This is a family, a husband and wife with four children, all girls, and how they kind of deal with the relationship of each other, the, the, the couple that are married and their four kids. And there was a review by Rebecca Mackay, author of The Great Believers, which is another book I loved, where she says, everything about this brilliant debut cuts deep. The humor, the wisdom, the pathos. Claire Lombardo writes like she's been doing it for 100 years and like she's been alive for a thousand. It really is, it really was a, a neat read. And again, I, I read voraciously during the summer. I loved all of these. 
And without further ado, I want to introduce you to someone who wrote a book that I was super interested and absolutely loved. My guest is Leslie Morgan Steiner, and she wrote this book called The Naked Truth. And she refers to it often in some of her interviews as TNT, which I thought was great. In addition to her work as an author, she's also a consultant and a thought leader on women's leadership, work-life balance, inspirational parenting, overcoming adversity, and surviving violence against women. She lives in D.C., so she's Skyping in with us today to tell her about her latest memoir, The Naked Truth, which explores femininity, aging, and sexuality over 50. Yes, it exists. She also wrote the New York Times bestseller, bestselling memoir, Crazy Love, the anthology Mommy Wars, an exploration in infertility titled The Baby Chase, and two TED Talks. Welcome to Divorce Sucks, Leslie Morgan Steiner. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Being 51 years old and being happily one of the one third who has had sex in the last year, I'm, <laughs> your book, and just dealing with so many men and women that um, go through, you know, a 20 year plus marriage like you did and then kind of come out on the other side of speed dating, online dating, all this stuff. I, I think it's really, really an important thing that this book exists. So, Tell tell our listeners a little bit about why you decided to do this. Well, you know, the the intensity of motherhood and marriage kind of causes a lot of women to lose themselves and perhaps some men too in the whole experience. And I found myself divorced at 49 and feeling just lost, unattractive, desexualized, not valued. And I realized I'd lost myself in a, along with the marriage. And I knew I couldn't find myself on a diet of self-help and yoga. And I, I realized, and first I just realized this to myself, I couldn't write about it or tell anybody. I realized that the answer was in men, that I needed men and I needed a lot of them. <laughs> so I came up with this crazy idea that I was going to date, well, date in air quotes, because I didn't right. even know what that meant, right. five men for a year. And I did. And it was fantastic. One of the smartest, best, most wonderful things I've ever done in my life. And then, of course, because I'm a writer, I decided to write about it. And I I didn't want to do sort of a nonfiction research book or interview a lot of other women. I thought the most powerful thing would be just to tell the story of how I got to such a low place and how I called out to the universe of men to help me find myself again. I love it. And I love there was somewhere that I read that you kind of decided to do what so many men do when they hit, you know, middle age, midlife crisis, you know, bought a sports car, started dressing younger <laughs> and really just started approaching people that you found attractive, which we as women know men do all the time because we're the beneficiaries of that. Like, ew, really gross or, oh, hey, that makes me feel good. So you started doing it. How was that kind of jumping off point? Because clearly, you know, have, being the mother of two teenagers and being in a relationship for 20 years, that was those that was not your M.O. previously. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I didn't know how to approach men. I didn't know that it's really important when you see somebody you like to get their name, you know, that you can never track somebody down without a name. So I was very clumsy at first. But I just I persevered. And I also, as an aside, I hate online dating. So I I couldn't do that. And I didn't do any of it. And I just started to see that there were wonderful men everywhere I went in the airport, on the sidewalk and the gym, the supermarket. And I just started kind of very casually and chatting up men who I found attractive. 
And it worked. Um, I was rejected a lot and I failed a lot, but it worked enough that I was able to cobble together five men and actually a lot more than five. And then at times zero, because it doesn't, you can't just really like whip up five all of a sudden. Right. And the thing that shocked me the most that I was that I did it. But then the thing that shocked me the second most was that every man I ended up connecting with was younger. And some of them were 20 years younger. And they and that also is a typical male MO. And I realized why it worked, you know, that the, these younger men, they didn't make me feel old, they made me feel and they didn't make me feel young either. They made me feel like exactly my age and really valued for being an older, wiser woman who had a lot of sexual experience. And it really made my head spin so much that I knew I had to write the naked truth about it and kind of share it. Question. And again, you say, you said just now, but that you didn't like online dating. And I know that so many of our members of our community, that's their kind of first go-to. Why didn't you, I, I think I know the answer, but I want to hear you say it. Why don't you like it? Well, online dating is especially tough on older women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the studies show that men's desirability peaks online at age 50 and women's at 18. Wow. So there's a lot of rejection as right. an older woman dating online. I didn't want to do that. Right. And also, I don't find it romantic or appealing or sexy. I think it's a great marketplace. I'm glad it exists. It just wasn't for me. And also, I, I'm a pretty friendly person. So I found it very easy to just smile at men who I found attractive and take it from there. And I, I have to tell you, you walk down the street smiling at men and they're going to notice. And right. it doesn't matter if you're overweight or underweight, just if you've got that mojo and you're smiling, men love it. So one of the things that you also, I mean, you really, you, you're quite frank in your book about what goes on and it's very detailed and personal dives into all of these things, particularly intimacy. Do you think that, have you been accused of oversharing and, and do you care? Well, I, I think that oversharing is just a, a euphemism for telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that anybody who says I'm oversharing, I think they're kind of trying to shame me. Mm-hmm. Um, our society is not comfortable with women talking frankly about sex, especially an older woman. I mean, we're supposed to go and hide and be invisible and no one wants to be invisible. And I certainly didn't. So I put the, the shame back on per- people who say that about me. I like it might that. be that they don't want to do this or they don't want to talk about it. But I think it was really important to, to absolutely tell the truth. Memoir is about telling the truth. It's what Crazy Love was about as well. And so I'm, I'm here telling the truth. So on that note, what are your kids, your teenagers? I've got one. Um, how do they feel about it, the book? There is not a kid on this planet that wants their mother to write a book about her sex life. So, <laughs> and by the way, if imagine. there is, that, we don't want to know that kid. <laughs> exactly. Very good point there. My kids did not like it. Um, They don't like it. And they've been really candid with me about that. And to me, that's validation that I raised them right. Um, They're very open about their feelings. And I also feel like a lot of kids never really know who their mom is Mm -hmm. because our culture says that we have to be like, you know, this sweet, loving, kind of perfect little mom and then grandma one day. And I feel like I've given my kids a priceless gift by sharing with them who I really am. Most kids don't know who their mom really is, and mine do. That's great. I like that. 
So how do we reconcile the fact that we, because I too am over 50, and people like Helen Mirren and Dr. Ruth and J-Lo and Halle Berry and Gloria Steinem all are these vibrant over 50 women that will embrace their, their, their physicality and their sexuality, and yet the, some of those same women are the women that really will call themselves feminists and say, don't cat call me on the street, don't sexually harass me, don't make the first overture. Is this a confusing dynamic for those of us that truly believe that there should be more than one third of women over 50 who've had sex in the last year? Yet at the same time, we're all going, we can, the casting couch can no longer exist. You know, don't, don't touch me if I don't want to be touched, etc. I think it's confusing, but there's no contradiction because the real message is my body, my rules. I get to say who cat calls me. I get to say whether I like it or not. Right. Um, I get to say who I have sex with and when. And that could be zero people. It could be 500 people. But it's my choice. And I think that's the real message of me, too. And I think me, you, the women that you named we're, we're starting a revolution, and I think it's just as important a, revo- a revolution as the Me Too movement. And it says, I'm still sexual, and I want to be noticed, um, but on my terms. not I don't want Harvey Weinstein or Donald Trump or Woody Allen or Bill Cosby deciding who is attractive. I get to say who is attractive, and I get to walk down the street strutting and feeling like I'm attractive. And, and if somebody whistles at you, is that offensive to you? Because I'm just going to say it is. It doesn't bother me. I'll smile. Thank you right. very much. Right. Wave. I mean, they're not touching me. They're just giving me a compliment, which in many ways is the same as smiling flirtatiously at someone as you're coming towards them on the street. Right. Now, but when I was in my 20s, I, it really scared me when, when men did that because they had so much power over me. Men don't have power over me anymore. Right. And so when they do that, I like it. You know, when men like, you know, hey, you want to get married? You know, (laughs) oh, you know, like, like I've gotten a lot of marriage proposals walking down the street and it's it's fun and it's flattering. and, And frankly, I like it. And that's part of being a feminist, in my view, is that there isn't one rule for every woman out there. We've got to find our own rules. You say there's more women over 50 in the U.S. today than in any other point in history. How does, and again, this one-third of women in their 50s haven't had sex in a year, and 50% of women in their 60s haven't, how does what we are talking about and what you discuss in your book, Leslie, how does it dovetail with menopause, if at all, the changes that we go through hormonally in terms of our sexuality? Well, what so many women say to me is that after they've gone through menopause, they feel an incredible freedom to be themselves, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And that could be that they no longer want to wear makeup and worry about being attractive to anybody. And they want to be invisible. That's Hmm. a wonderful kind of freedom. I mean, invisibility is a superpower to other people. It means that they don't have to worry about birth control Mm -hmm. um, and that they can be more sexually liberated. And I think it just depends on the woman. And, you know, I think that having being a sexual being is part of our identity. And I think sometimes you lose that in marriage and it's a wonderful awakening to rediscover it, whether you're married or divorced or single, it's part of who we are. And one of the things that shocked me about the naked truth is how many committed married couples have loved it and mm-hmm. have used it kind of as a tool to improve their marriage. 
So this isn't about, you know, get out there and, and have five boyfriends in a year like I did, unless you really want to, and some people do. Right. But even if you're in a committed relationship and you never want to get divorced, I think that there's something in the naked truth and this whole idea of female sexuality that's really appealing to anybody. So on that note, since you had boy, five boyfriends, we'll call that in quotes, in one year, what, what, it, we will ask this during the uh, divorce sex interrogatories, but where did you end up? Where are you now? Are you in a relationship with somebody? Do you want to get married? Are you with, you know, bachelor number five or are you still going? I, I think <laughs> I read somewhere about a sequel because these guys keep giving you so much great material. Tell our that listeners what's happening, now, Leslie. I'm dating. Um, I, I love men and I love being a woman and I love being sexual. And, and I keep on meeting amazing guys, some of whom give me really hilarious material for the sequel <laughs> for The Naked Truth. And it's funny because everybody asks me with an emphasis on the word still, are you still single? Because our society just can't let go of the idea that the only happy ending for a woman is to get married and live happily ever after. And I'm single and I'm so happy about it. And this is my happily ever after. And I, maybe I'll get married again. I don't know. I, I got to see what the universe has in store for me. But right now I'm just loving working on the sequel and dating again. And we'll see what happens. Amen, sister. Believe me, I, I, I don't, I don't doubt I'll ever get married again. And I just, that's not something I need in my life. Love dating in a committed relationship, but I, I totally agree with you. And I think it's so fantastic for our listeners to be able to hear somebody say that, be really happy in their skin, their 50 year old skin, feeling good. And I mean, I hope that some of our listeners can take something away from this. Men as well as women. Absolutely. I mean, there, there, are no, there are no Prince Charmings out there, and it's a destructive myth for women, but it's also really unfair to men. Yes. To think that men have to take care of us. It's, it's, so this is good news for men, too. Yeah, you guys, you don't need to have a white horse. Come on in. Just pay for at least half of dinner. <laughs> Captivating a new lover, seduction and sex does not have to lead to divorce, but the divorce sex interrogatories are inevitable. So stick around for a second, Leslie, and listeners. Okay, so just so you guys know, during the break, a couple of calls, including my 31 male producer, Sean, like everybody's in love and wants to get with Leslie. I love it. Okay. So my guests today are two absolutely amazing authors, Vanessa Van Edwards, lead investigator at Science of People, and she's the best-selling author of Captivate, the Science of Succeeding with People. Her book has been translated into 15 different languages and more than 20 million people watch her on YouTube. And Leslie Morgan, who recently completed her fourth nonfiction work, The Naked Truth, a memoir which explores female aging and sexuality after motherhood and divorce. So what's the number one piece of advice you can offer someone who is considering divorce, Vanessa? Does it feel cleansing or destructive? Okay. What if it feels both? I think that that's a good thing as long as you're willing to approach it like a cleanse. Okay. Leslie? Number one piece of advice you can offer someone who's considering divorce. Take your time. I think it's, you know, divorce is terrible. It's really painful and awful. And it's the kind of thing you've got to be 100% sure is the right thing for you to do for you and your family. I like it. All right. Are you guys ready to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? <laughs> Leslie? Yeah. Absolutely. That's the way I live my life. Vanessa? I swear. Okay. So we heard from Leslie. Vanessa, tell us, what's your relationship status? Married. Married. And um, Vanessa, what is your favorite breakup song? Carrie Underwood, When She Smashes Stuff. 
Before he cheats. Before he cheats. Mm. Okay, Leslie? Oh my God, I have so many favorite breakup songs. <laughs> I think A Better Man. And I just miss you and I just wish you were a better man. Okay. Wish You Were a Better Man is great and also Burning House. I've been sleepwalking. A really, really great nice. breakup songs. Okay. Vanessa, what would you say to cheer up a friend, a friend going through a breakup? I would say, what are all the things that this person did to make you smarter? better or stronger. Those are the things I want you to hold really close. Good. Leslie, would you say get in the car or going to the airport to find a man? (laughs) (laughs) That's probably what I would do. I would say, um, this was meant to be. You deserve better. Um, Have me come over. I'll help you get a great wardrobe and um, I'm going to drop you off at the airport and you have to come, you have to get smile at five men and get, get three men's telephone numbers. I love it. Vanessa, which romantic comedy could you watch on repeat? Notting Hill. Oh, yes. yes. Love. Let Leslie. Me you. Oh, my God. Does um, Superbad count as a romantic comedy? <laughs> if it does for you, it does for us. That's it my does. theme movie. That's my theme movie, man. <laughs> Vanessa, Leslie, thank you both for joining us today and for sharing some exclusive behind-the-scenes revelations about what drove you both to write your latest nonfiction works. Of course, both of your books that we discussed today are available on Amazon, but please tell our listeners where they can find more about you and your work online. Vanessa. Yeah, thanks for having me. So everything is at scienceofpeople.com, and you also can get my audiobook on Amazon or Audible. Cool. And Instagram and Twitter? Oh, V Van Edwards and YouTube is just Vanessa Van Edwards. Okay. And Leslie? On Facebook, I'm Leslie Morgan Steiner. And my website and all of my other social media handles are Leslie Books. And also she's got TED Talks. So you can find her on YouTube. Oh, uh, that's right. Yep. Two TED Talks on YouTube. And also I read The Naked Truth, the audio version. And um, it I think it's really special to hear a memoirist read their own book. I think that's true, too. I totally agree. I like that in your own voice, literally. I'm Laura Wasser, the divorce attorney and your host of Divorce Sucks. This is not death. This is just the end of one part (laughs) of your life. And moving on to the next chapter is absolutely normal. You're going to be okay. Thank you for joining our community and my book club today. Leave a review and tell us what you like best about today's show and what you'd like to hear next. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next Monday.